You may be seated. It's a great joy for me and Nancy to be with you this morning, for, to be with you all summer. And I'm sure we'll have occasion to get to know each other better. So I'm not going to use precious time to uh, tell you a lot about myself. Little bits of me will, will leak into the sermon from time to time. But uh, that's not why we're here primarily uh, it's great to look around and see a few familiar faces. I've long wanted to be here. Um, I've, I've heard so many wonderful stories of faith uh, from 14 plus years of planting here in Fairfield, Connecticut. Um, it's one of the weird things about being in the Anglican Church in North America that we have these widely dispersed dioceses. I mean, it, in one sense, it makes no sense at all that, um, that your bishop should be in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. Uh, covering territory from there all the way to Maine. Uh, but we're glad it does, because it means we get to hang out together. I'm thrilled to finally get to work alongside my good friend, Jan Buchanan. Um, I, I look out and I see Kevin Coulson. Kevin and I have hung out together all over the world um, from occasion to occasion. And um, I bring you greetings from Bishop Steve, who is on the second half of his sabbatical. Um, I actually think he's hanging out with his grandson who's at wrestling camp this week. So he and Sally send their love and their greetings. Let's pray. Lord, we would see Jesus today. Lord, we would hear Jesus today. Lord, we would be moved to follow Jesus today. In his name we pray. Amen. I've been praying for you since before we landed here on the 3rd of July. Um, it's, as I say, our great joy to be able to serve you in this way. It's not anything we anticipated. It's not anything you anticipated. It's certainly nothing that Brian and Tamara anticipated. But um, I count it a privilege to be able to serve my friends, my brother, my sister, all of you. Um, it's kind of a fortuitous thing also because uh, though you may not be deeply aware of all that this entails, uh, you were already connected to my wife Nancy um, in that you are one of 24 congregations who are a part of this C3, Creating a Culture of Calling uh, initiative, uh, churches around the country. Uh, you'll be hearing more and more of that as you move into the fall, um, but um, we've had a chance already to gather with, with Brian and Jan uh, to, to dream about what that initiative could be for you as we discover together what it means to be to live out our Christian calling in the world. We're going to spend the summer in Colossians. Eight weeks. Um, my passion for this book runs deep. When I was a, uh, a young curate, a young assistant to the pastor, at a Lutheran church in the suburbs of Chicago in 1984, I was, I was uh, browsing through his library one day, and I came across a little book that changed my life. 
the book has long been out of print. Nobody here would know the author. Uh, none of that's really important, but this was a little book of meditations by a New Testament scholar on Paul's letter to the Colossians. Um, I devoured the book then and then put it away. And years later, some 16 years later, I rediscovered the book, devoured it all over again, and this time it really began to, uh, to gnaw at me. And uh, I've come back to it many times since. I, I finally acquired, um, I had to photocopy the book from my pastor's library, and then I acquired the book finally a few years ago on, on a used book list. Colossians has shaped my perspective on ministry. It has fueled my faith when I've needed it most, when I was dry and empty. Um, I'm praying that this summer, Paul will use this letter, God will use this letter of Paul, rather, to do that for us, to meet us powerfully in whatever way we need to be met by God's word. It's a short and simple little book in many respects. From the very beginning, all the way through to chapter 2, verse 5, Paul gives this rambling, long introduction. He introduces himself and his ministry. He says, I am an apostle. That ought to grab our attention right away. You know, don't just skip over these little greetings at the beginning. They're not just throwaway. They're not just formalities. I'm an apostle. I've been sent to you, although he never met the Colossians. He never got there. He's writing from prison. But he's writing with the authority of God's own Sending and power. He said, I'm an apostle by the will of God. Which is to say, I'm writing to you because you and I are a part of God's plan. That's what it means to be writing, in Paul's case, by the will of God. I was wondering last night, as I was thinking about this morning, what if we were to regularly think of ourselves as functioning each day by the will of God. To make that our conscious thought, to ask, so what's today going to be like by the will of God? How might that change how I move through the day? Paul does three things, essentially, in, the, in this front part of his letter, this long introduction. He, he says in today's reading, this is how I'm thanking God for you. He's, he's thanking God for founding this church, for bringing these people together. He said later on, and we'll get into this the next couple of weeks, this is how I'm praying for you. And then finally, in three or four weeks' time, we'll see Paul say, this is what I'm doing for you. All of this is laying the foundation for what is the main thrust of this letter. And I wanted to get this right out front because this is Paul's driving purpose in Colossians, maturity in Christ. Paul is writing to the Colossians and to us with one great desire, that they should grow into full Christian maturity. That's the main thing. You know, you've probably heard the little business saying, keep making the main thing the main thing. Well, here's the main thing according to Paul, to present everyone, everyone mature in Christ. And here in today's reading, these first eight verses of Colossians 1, we see Paul's powerful strategy for ministry. I, I don't often do this. This is, this is a Baptist thing that, uh, that is, is actually kind of winsome at times, but it can also become tedious. Um, I don't often use little, um, you know, the same word, the same letter, you know. But 
three P words today are going to do the job nicely. Okay? People, proclamation, and prayer. That's Paul's strategy. People, proclamation, and prayer. He gives thanks to God, the God of the gospel, giving credit where credit is due, praying when things look good. We'll get into that in a minute. He talks a lot about preaching, proclaiming the good news for which we're to be thankful. He says, for instance, that this gospel is true and relevant and powerful. The gospel's not just a message, and you don't come to church just to hear a message about how to relieve your stress, though some of us could use that. You don't come to hear a message from me or any other preacher about how to balance your busy lives, though we could certainly all use that. Sunday mornings in a gathering of worshiping Christians is never just about coping. No, this is about what Paul says is is the main driving purpose of our worship, to celebrate Jesus Christ, the hope of glory. David Reed, a great English evangelist, once wrote, there is no chance of the church taking its evangelical task seriously unless it first recovers its confidence in the truth, relevance, and power of the gospel and begins to get excited about it again. Wouldn't you love to see that? Whole church is getting excited about the gospel all over again. I actually think that ought to be on the agenda of every church. Periodically, to get excited about the gospel again. To blow everything up and say, okay, now what? Don't tell Brian I said, blow it all up. (laughs) And then to pray. Praying for the continual work of the gospel, not just temporal blessings, not just immediate family and friends' needs. Pray continually. Pray to the same God we we thank. Pray big, as C.S. Lewis once said. Colossians 1, 1 to 8, answers three questions. Okay? Three questions. The first question is this. Where do I belong? The second question is, is anyone out there praying for me? And the third question is, what's the gospel worth? Okay? That's my simple outline this morning. So first, where do I belong? Paul begins the letter, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. Or to the faithful saints, it could also be translated. That's who you are. Let's get clear about our identity right at the outset. That's who you are. You are the faithful saints. You are the ones who have been called out of the world and dedicated to God's purposes. It's God who has brought us together. We're separated from the world for God's purposes. We're devoted to God alone, committed, steadfast, to the holy and faithful brothers and sisters in Christ in Colossae. You know, you hear that question all the time. Where do you, where do you come from? Uh, Paul, uh, it's, it's fascinating that Paul gives us all this identity stuff in one sentence. Faithful saints, brothers and sisters. And then these two little phrases, back to back. In Christ, in Colossae. Those are both hugely important. These are not just people who live in a place. They do. They live in a very specific place. You know, 
just like you. If I were to ask you, where do you live? You would say Fairfield or wherever you live in this region. If you ask me where I live, I would say in Durham, North Carolina. We ask people all the time, you know, where are you from? We, we think our identity is all wrapped up in birthplace, parents' home, where we went to college, the city we inhabit. We lived for a decade in St. Louis. You always ask people in St. Louis, where did you go to high school? Don't know where that comes from. We talk about workplace, holiday destinations, where we live now, where we lived 10 years ago, where we go to church. All of those are ways of answering the place question. And, and that's important in identifying us. But Paul says it's not just that these people are in Colossae. They are also simultaneously in Christ. That's the other place they inhabit, so to speak. Right at the beginning of the letter, Paul tells the Colossians that they're in two places, two realities, in Christ, in Colossae, in the purposes of God in Christ, and in the purposes of God in a city, both at the same time. Every congregation has to figure that out. What does it mean not just to be in Christ, but to be in Christ in Fairfield, Connecticut? And I know how actively you all have tried to sort out what that means to be in this place. It's not the same to be in this place as in the place I have lived. And that's important. Where do I belong? And secondly, the question that Paul wants to answer is anyone out there praying for me? Having identified the Colossians as being in Christ, in Colossae, faithful saints, the product of God's gracious movements in the Holy Spirit, having made them brothers and sisters. Paul's saying, I've, God has created a family in this city, and this family has its identity in Christ. I've been thinking a lot about, about that identity question lately because so many of us and so many of our friends and neighbors have been cut absolutely loose from all the normal moorings, all the ways that we have learned to identify ourselves, now we live in a culture that says it's up to you and me to decide who we are. You know? And the gospel counters that message powerfully. There's a lot that's right about the word autonomy, being self-defined, self-ruled, if you will, but there's a lot that's wrong with it and unhealthy with it. And it's very important to be reminded by St. Paul that our most fundamental, our most basic, our most central identity has been given to us in Christ, through the gospel, in the power of the Holy Spirit. When you were baptized, you were marked with the sign of Christ and made Christ's own forever. It's good to be reminded of that. Now in this family... It's good to ask, is anyone out there praying for me? Paul says, we always, we, that's Paul, that's his pal Timothy, that's Epaphras, the founder of the church in Colossae, who's imprisoned with Paul in all likelihood in Ephesus, that's Onesimus, a converted slave who has brought the news of what's going on in Colossae to the prison cell in Ephesus. 
Onesimus, who's the slave of Philemon, getting all these connections. Philemon was probably a member of the church in Colossae. Epaphras had no doubt heard Paul preach in Ephesus, had planted the church. He was, he was Thad Barnum in Colossae. And probably every bit the firebrand. Paul says he was a faithful fellow servant. He tells us, and we'll talk about this another day in more detail, he wrestles for you in prayer. It would be pretty cool if your pastor were noted most, mostly for the way he wrestles for you in prayer and for proclaiming the good news of Jesus. Paul says, we always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. Why does that phrase, I'll pray for you, always sound a little bit like a threat? <laughs> Am I doing something wrong? You know, have, I, have I messed up again? Um, it's, it's, you know, it's in the tone, oh, I'll pray for you. Is there something I don't know? Am I ill? What do I need? I'll pray for you. I'm sure I had muttered that phrase dozens of times. And people had said it to me. And in my experience, until a number of years ago, in my experience, saying that or hearing it said to me was the end of the story. I'll, I'll pray for you, Jan, and then see you later. And one day that all changed for me. I had just read an article in a magazine, in Christianity Today, I think, by a guy named Ben Patterson. It was a, it was a, I'd read a lot of articles by Ben Patterson. He was a Presbyterian pastor, a campus pastor in Michigan at the time. And um, this particular day, this particular article just stunned me. It stopped me cold in my tracks. It made such an impact on me. I did what I had never done until that, up to that point. I, I got on the phone and I called Ben Patterson. Uh, I got his secretary at Hope College in Michigan, and she said, oh, Ben would love to hear from you. He'd love to hear the encouraging expression of gratitude about the article and how it, how it impacted you. She said, I'll, I'll set up a time. She set up a time. On that day, I called the office, and she said, yeah, I'll get Ben. Um, I've got the receiver to my ear. Parents, you'll have to explain to your kids what a receiver is. <laughs> um, and I began to tell Ben about the impact of his article. And, and he, he laughed and, and he said, oh, it's even better. Let me tell you more. And so I got the rest of the story. And we had a delightful conversation for a half hour or so. And, and finally, I, I was feeling kind of guilty like I'd eaten into his schedule. And I said, uh, listen, let's thank you so much again for, for having written this article um, and thank you for taking the time. He said, can I pray for you? And I said, sure, and began to hang up the phone. And the, the, the receiver is halfway down to the phone, and I can hear him praying. So I rushed it back up to my ear, and he's praying fervently for me on the basis of a half hour's getting to know each other. And I'm weeping like a baby because of how passionately 
and lovingly and sweetly, he was praying for me. And I vowed that I would never just casually say, hey, Jeff, can I pray for you? Sure. Yeah. Without doing it. So I owe you one. (laughs) Paul tells his readers he's been praying for them. In fact, he says he hasn't stopped praying for them since the day he heard about them. Now, that doesn't mean 24-7 in all likelihood. It means that Paul is praying throughout the day, faithful Jew, become follower of Jesus that he was. He's no doubt observing hours of prayer, fixed hours of prayer, praying spontaneously in between. But he's praying a whole lot for the Colossians, and he hasn't stopped praying since he's heard the good reports from them and everything that's happening in their lives. Why is he praying so much? He's praying because he wants to say thank you for them. And then he tells them, this is cool, he tells them why they fill him with gratitude. He said, I'm thankful that you're there, that you encourage me, that you love your fellow Christians. It's all there in those first eight verses, which includes me, Paul says. I know you'll pray for me, that you have faith, that the gospel's bearing fruit in your lives. I've heard about it that you understand what it means to be a follower of Jesus. All of that Paul is giving thanks to God for. He does go on to pray for more specific things. That's where we'll go next week. But he begins by thanking the Lord for them, even though he may never have met them, and even though they lived some thousand miles away from him. So I was praying for you, from 560 miles away before we hit the road the other day. Even as you pray for brothers and sisters in far-flung quarters, corners of the country and, and the world, even as we pray for Brian and Tamara in a, in a tough season of life, I... I really think if, if we accomplished nothing else together this summer, these eight weeks together, nothing else except to rediscover the beauty and the power of intercessory prayer for one another, we would have learned well the lesson of Colossians. I made a little discovery I mean, it really is a little discovery, but with tremendous impact uh, after that conversation with with Ben Patterson those years ago. um, It drove me back into uh, reading Paul's letters um, and particularly paying attention to the prayers that fill Paul's letters. Uh, Do this sometime. Just focus your attention on Paul's prayers. Uh, Sometimes they're explicit. Sometimes you have to kind of look at the grammar a little bit to see that, oh, yeah, he's actually praying here. Or at least he's telling us how he prays, when he prays. But all over the letters. And what I love about Paul is he doesn't just say, you know, thanks. 
He'll say, I thank God for you. And then he says, why? And so I started trying that on, saying to people, not just, hey, great job, thanks, but, you know, I thank God for you, and then name why. I'm pretty sure that you would never meet with an objection or disgruntlement or scorn if you were to make a habit of telling people, I thank God for you. It might be disarming. It might be totally surprising. It might elicit interesting questions like, why? But think of the opportunities that could unfold. And even if none unfold, you will have fulfilled an important God-assigned mission which is to pray for others, to thank God for them in specific ways. Encourage someone, thank the Lord for them, tell them why you appreciate them, and then tell them that. So, the question, where do I belong? Is anyone out there praying for me? And then the third question, and this is, this is really Paul's kind of naming the important theme for the rest of the summer. What's the gospel worth? He says, all over the world, this gospel is producing fruit and growing, just as it has been doing among you since the day you heard it. What's the gospel worth? He uses three or four synonyms for the gospel. He calls it the word of the truth, the grace of God. He even says it's a person, Jesus Christ. We don't know how the, exactly what it looked like or how the gospel reached Colossae, but we know that Epaphras had something to do with it. We do know that the Colossians had embraced the message as, as good news, as you have. So we read, they had understood God's grace in all its truth, and this had given them an eternal hope, verses 5 and 6. You want to know the meaning of life? The gospel opens a window on the wisdom of God. Want a sense of direction and purpose? That's what the C3 movement is really about. Uh, The gospel shows you values to live for. You want affirmation of your value as a human being? being? The gospel tells you that God loves you. God bends down to care for you. You want true and loving relationships? The gospel will change you and teach you to love. And that's what the gospel unleashed among the Colossians. Colossians. And so when Paul thanks them for the evidence, the fruit that is born by the preaching of the gospel, the primary fruit he's talking about is changed lives and loving community. People growth and gospel growth. Paul expresses his gratitude to God for signs of the faithful acceptance by the Colossians of the gospel and the evidence of the gospel being worked out in their lives. Their love for one another is the primary evidence. And it's not just here, not just in Colossae, not just in Fairfield, but all over the world, this gospel is still producing fruit and growing. In China, where whole villages turn to Christ. Amazingly. In the Middle East. Do you know where the fastest growing church in the world is currently? In Iran. The underground church 
led by lay catechists, where one person in a Muslim home finds faith secretly listening to the radio or in a dream. And now a seminary is being launched to train more lay catechists to plant more house churches. In Africa, in Rwanda, in Uganda, next time Bishop Steve's here, have him tell you stories of his mission trip to Uganda. Latin America, where the churches are fast outgrowing the supply of leaders. And even in Britain, the mother of Anglicanism, even there, the church is exploding, largely through African immigrants who are bringing a fervent proclamation of the gospel into the streets of London. What Paul's saying is simply this. Before the gospel can grow and bear fruit in our lives, before we can be changed, the gospel must be heard and understood. How do people get to hear the gospel? Through faithful messengers like Epaphras, like Paul, like Timothy, like Brian, like Jan. So, in conclusion, here's what we get in this first introductory eight verses. It's good news. We have a family. Look around the room. Just do a quick scan. By the grace of God, through the proclamation of the gospel, we have a family. That's not nothing. That's a precious gift. Not to be taken for granted. And in this family, secondly, we have people praying for us. I know you know that. If you don't know that, then somebody, somebody tell them. We have a family. We have people praying for us. And most importantly, we have a gospel. We have a message of the precious grace of God. We have a Savior, Jesus, who died for us, who rose again, who is alive, who's in charge, who loves us. Praise God. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.